Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you have spoken, King Jesus, through it, that it is living and active. And Lord, I'm sure there's many today who who come in feeling like their faith is dead and inactive. So as we look at your word, the teachings of Jesus preserved through the centuries, the living word of God, I pray that it would produce faith in us, that it would cause our faith to be living and active, just as alive as you are, just as powerful as you are. God, meet us where we're at this morning and lead us to where you desire us to be, in your presence where there are pleasures forevermore and fullness of joy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the Christ. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, it felt so good for me to prove the know-it-all high schoolers wrong. See, I was a 22-year-old know-it-all youth pastor who was bringing groups of know-it-all high schoolers, sounds like a bad combo, right? A 22-year-old know-it-all youth pastor and a bunch of know-it-all high schoolers into the Boundary Waters. We were taking youth group trips into the Boundary Waters, and this particular year I had a guy on the trip who had done some fishing in the Boundary Waters. And so he thought he knew how to fish the Boundary Waters. Now, those of you who don't know me, I grew up in Grand Marais, Minnesota, right at the edge of the Boundary Waters. And so I grew up going into the Boundary Waters doing walleye fishing, northern fishing, smallmouth bass fishing. I know how to fish in the Boundary Waters. And here, this little city kid from Chaska is trying to tell me that he knows how to fish in the Boundary Waters. And so the whole drive up to the Boundary Waters, we're going back and forth about who knows how to fish more. I'm telling them stories of all the fish that I've caught over the years and that his fishing skills in no way compare to mine. And so we finally get up to the Boundary Waters, and you know how it is if you ever talk to somebody who fish, like there's, there's this term, fish tales, right? Fish stories, because every fisherman lies about how good they are, how big the fish that they catch are, how many fish they catch, and so they're convinced that I'm just making up stories, right? And, and I'm convinced that they don't know how to fish because they're from the cities, the suburbs. They don't, they don't know how to do the Boundary Water thing, and so praise the Lord and His providence, we got out there, we started fishing, And my canoe, the canoe that I was in, along with the other youth pastor chaperone, we started hauling in the fish one after another. I have proof. There it is. Look at that. I just wanted to prove to you that I could fish. so, So we're out on this lake, in the secret lake, and me and my friend Andy are catching fish one after another. We are pulling sizable walleyes into our canoe, and Dan Weber, my friend from my last youth group, was, was there trying. He was catching nothing, and he came close to our canoe. We even took compassion on him. We gave him the same hooks, the same bait, everything that we were using. We gave it to him because we actually wanted him to participate in and experience the joy of catching these fish. In fact, my friend and I, we caught a few on plain hooks without any bait because we had given our bait over to my friend Dan so that he could try and prove to us that he knew how to catch fish. And it continued. He's the one taking the picture of us because he had no fish to hold up. He's in another canoe taking a picture. This is also proof that, that, that picture quality has improved over the last 10 years, right? The reality is if you claim to be something, you have to back that up. You have to prove it. When I was in high school, if you claim to be a skater, anyone remember those days? There were like skaters and jocks and preps and goth kids. I I tried to be a skater for about two years, and if you claimed to be a skater, you had to back that up by skateboarding. You had to prove it, otherwise you became what was known as a poser. 
I was quickly known to be a poser, so I put down the skateboard and picked up something else. But the reality is that if you claim to be something, you have to prove it. You have to back it up. Matthew chapter 8 and 9, that's exactly what is happening. There's really two big ideas going on in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. And the first one is that Jesus is being verified. His, the, these chapters, the, re, the, the record of Matthew following Jesus, recording his ministry, it's verifying Jesus' divinity by showcasing his authority. Matthew 8 and 9, which we're in, we were in it last week, and so if you missed last week, go back onto the website and listen to the sermon last week because we're actually picking up in the middle of the sermon this week and kind of finishing off what we started last week. But what we're seeing here in these two chapters, when you take them together, it's, it's kind of this unit of, of faith in, in showing us Matthew, the disciple, is following Jesus. He's recording Jesus' life and his miracles and he's showing us, he's verifying for us Jesus' divinity by showing us his authority over all things. If you remember at the end of Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which we had been in a couple weeks ago for months, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. At the end of Matthew 7, if you have a Bible, look at it. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one, the one in front of you, and open it up and get your eyes on God's word with us this morning. We're on page 811, 812, 813, 814. We're kind of going through this whole section. So at the end of Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, Jesus comes down from the mount, which he gave the Sermon on the Mount on. And it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their own scribes. And so Jesus' teaching, his preaching, his communication, his verbal teaching to the people came across as, as authoritative. They heard his word, his teaching, and this started to stir in them faith. And then as we move from chapter 7 into Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we see that Jesus doesn't only speak with authority, he backs it up. So people are wondering, is this the Son of God? Is this the promised Messiah of the Old Testament? And people are wondering about Jesus' identity, and he's actually here as he does things. He's telling people not to give away his identity yet, not to give away his credibility yet, because his time hadn't yet come where he would be crucified. But he's beginning to verify his divinity, that he is God in flesh, that Jesus has all authority, all power, all dominion in heaven and on earth. He's verifying that by the things that he's doing these incredible miracles that we see in Matthew chapter 8 and 9. So as we go through Matthew chapter 9 this morning, keep that in mind, that a major theme of what's happening and what we are supposed to learn about Jesus, what Matthew the author wants us to know 2,000 years later, is that Jesus is showing his divinity by having all authority in heaven and on earth to heal, to cast out demons, to care for people, to meet people in their area of need. And then the second thing that I want us to see, and this is what we talked about last week, which we'll pick up again this week, is that these chapters, chapter 8 and 9 of Matthew, they show us that faith in Jesus is the supernatural root that produces supernatural fruit. If you were here last week, you remember me telling a story about my daughter Oakley liking to wear her swimsuit. She likes to wear her swimsuit every day, all day, no matter where we're going, regardless of whether we're going to a pool or a beach or not, because she believes her swimsuit is more comfortable and cute than her clothes. And so because she believes that, she, she acts on that. She's two and a half, by the way, to put it in context for those of you who don't know my daughter Oakley. But she has these beliefs and those beliefs drive her behavior. They drive her decision. And this is true for all of us. 
with anything. We can always trace the fruit of our lives back to the, to the root of our belief. What you believe determines how you live. And these stories here in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 are here to help us believe in Jesus, in his authority. They're here. Matthew records this and it's been preserved throughout the ages to communicate to us Jesus' authority. And it's also here to help us live in his power. The word of God is before us today so that as we read it, as we look at these supernatural stories of Jesus, we would begin to believe in and have faith in the supernatural power of Jesus. That's the root that produces fruit. Maybe some of you feel like your life is very natural. You just go about life day by day. You go about things as any other human being does. and You claim to be a Christian, but, but where is this supernatural power of God? Well, we have to trace it back to our beliefs. Do we, do we really believe that God is supernatural? Do we really believe that Jesus heals, that Jesus saves? I mean, we say these things, we have, we have mental assent to them, but, but deep down, do we really trust God? Do we really lean into his power? And so that's what we're seeing here in Matthew 8 and 9. My prayer and hope for us is that as we just look at these stories, make some observations of these stories, that God would fan into flame the supernatural gift of faith. Faith is a gift from God. We looked at that last week. So I, I'm praying that God would fan into flame the supernatural gift of faith and that would produce more and more supernatural fruit in our lives. You guys want that? Do, do you want to experience the power of the living God in your personal life, in your communities, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, in this church gathering, in this church family? I sure do, and so I pray that as we go through this, that God would fan into flames his power, his truth, his word. Last week we went through these as we looked at Matthew chapter 8 primarily. We saw seven fruits, seven of the 14 fruits, so today we're going to get the other seven. And just as a quick way of review, this is what we saw last week in Matthew chapter 8. I'm not going to go through each one and kind of do an overview of that, but if you missed last week, you can go online and listen to that, what we covered last week. Today I want to pick it up with number 8, which is Matthew chapter 9, where Garth just read from. But before we pick it up in uh, Matthew chapter 9 with fruit number 8, I want you to just think for a moment and maybe write down on a note card one thing that you need to believe Jesus for today. Take a second. Think about one thing in your life that you need to trust Jesus for. I'm going to grab a drink of water while you do that. Really, I, I want you to actually write it down. It could be big, it could be small. One thing that you need to believe Jesus for, and maybe you know it, but write it down. I think sometimes it's, it's good for us to confess with our mouths, to, to put to paper the things that are on our hearts and our minds. Now, I want you to keep that thing in mind this morning as we look at God's Word. And I want you to remember, as we look at God's word, I'm praying that God would fan into flames the gift of faith this morning, that you would remember that that thing in your life that you're struggling with, that's holding you back, that's keeping you down, that Jesus has all authority over it, 
and that as you trust his supernatural power, that the fruit of your trust in him will be a supernatural experience of him. That doesn't mean that he's going to instantly remove or take away the things that you're struggling with. And we looked at this two weeks ago now, but I need to give us just a little preface here. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. So this leper comes to Jesus, a leper. He's cast off from society. He's filled with disease and sickness. And he says, Lord, acknowledging Jesus as master, if you will. He prays God's will be done, not his own will be done. Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter 6 to pray that the Lord's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So whatever that one thing is that you wrote down, continue to pray, God, your will be done, your will be done, your will be done. The leper comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And and listen to Jesus' response. And this is what we're going to see over and over again in Matthew 9. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. So keep in mind, God's will be done, but have an expectant heart that Jesus will meet you where you're at, that he has all authority, all power, and that he longs to bring wholeness into your life. All right? So keep that in mind as we go through this. Keep in mind his authority and the supernatural root of faith that produces supernatural fruit in life. Here's the first one that we see is that a fruit of faith is forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. This is a word that we use often here in Christian circles and in the church. And I think we use it so often that sometimes we become inoculated to it and and we begin to take forgiveness for granted. I mean, we talk about this all the time at Park Community Church, that there's nothing that you could do to earn your salvation. It is a free gift of God that he forgives your sins in the work that Jesus has done on the cross. All that is required of you is repentance, turning to him, receiving the free gift. And so I think because this word is so ingrained in us, we sometimes forget just how powerful it is. That that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, all of our sins are forgiven. Look at how this happens here in Matthew chapter 9. And getting into the boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, hear the phrase? When Jesus saw their faith. Now, is it the faith of the paralytic or is it the faith of the people who brought him there? That's an amazing reality, right? It seems like the people who are carrying this this paralyzed man who couldn't move on his own, they brought him to Jesus because they had heard about his authority, heard about his power, and so they were desperate at the end of their rope, and they said, if this man's going to be healed, he needs to have an encounter with Jesus, and so they have enough faith to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. Verse 2 at the end, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. It's an interesting response. He doesn't first say, stand up and walk. This this paralysis is done. You are healed. Your life circumstances are improved. Go and live your life however you wish. First, he, he goes to the man's heart. He says, take heart, my son. Last week, one of the fruits of faith was adoption. This is a reminder that when we have faith in God through his son, Jesus Christ, we are adopted into the family of God and we are addressed as son, as daughter. We are welcomed into the family. And so Jesus comes to this 
comes to this despised, cast-out, incapable, handicapped man who is likely paralyzed because of sin. Okay, all sin is a res- all, all sickness, all disease is a result of sin. Hear me on that. Because sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience, all bad that we experience now is a result of sin. In the garden, God had put a restriction from Adam and Eve eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Why did he do that? Because he didn't want his most beloved creation, the pinnacle of his creation, mankind created in his image, to experience evil. He said, do not eat of the tree of good and evil. Before that, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God created everything. He created it all as good. Right? He created all things as good and all that Adam and Eve knew was good. Until they listened to the lie of the serpent and ate the forbidden fruit. Now all of a sudden they're aware of bad. They know bad. And so, because of their original sin, and now we participate in sin, we are all underneath a curse. So, sin and, dis- sin and disease and, and, and sickness and disease exist because of sin. That doesn't mean that every cold, that every, every cancer verdict, that, that every broken leg, that every whatever it may be is a result of direct sin. Okay, so, so please don't hear me saying that, that if you're dealing with some kind of chronic illness or chronic sickness, that there's some specific sin that is causing that, and if you get rid of that sin, then you will be healed. That, that's not the case. All sickness, all disease is at least an indirect result of the fallen world that we live in. But some sickness, some disease, some injury is a, re- a direct result of sin. I mean, some of this just works its, way, works its way out naturally by the fruit of your life. You know, the, the, the fruit of your life is produced by the roots of your belief. So if you believe a faulty pattern and you continue to live your life a certain way, it's going to naturally result in some consequences. So the consequences of having zero money in the bank could be a sickness, could be a result of this, this sinful root of I want to spend my money whenever I want on the things that I want. Or, you know, obviously, how we, be, how we live affects the fruit of our life, okay? So all sin, all sickness, all disease is a result of sin, but some sin specifically produces sickness and disease, and it seems to be that's the case here with this paralytic. D.A. Carson writes this about this story. He, he, says, he, he says that, and other commentaries believe that this paralytic's problem is a direct result of sin. D.A. Carson argues that this paralysis is a result of specific sin, not some indirect sin, but specific sin. And he points us to notice the hope that this man would have felt in the phrase, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus goes to the root. He doesn't just say, get up and walk and continue to live your life in your patterns of sin. He doesn't put a band-aid on the issue. He, he goes to the source. He goes to the root. Jesus looks this man in the face and he says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Let's not gloss over that church. Let's not forget in the midst of life's circumstances, that Jesus has come to set us free from the penalty, from the weight, from the shame that we feel as a result of sin. 
And the story goes on, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming, talking about Jesus, because he's forgiving sin, and no one can do that other than God. So again, this is proof of Jesus' divinity. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and walk? Now, it's easy for any of us to utter the phrase, your sins are forgiven, right? And, and so they're wondering, they, they think Jesus is blaspheming, that he's using God's power, God's name, when he ought not to, because they didn't believe that he was the Son of God. And so it's easy to just utter that phrase, but now what Jesus does to go and prove his authority, he utters the phrase to the man who needed to hear it the most, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. He utters the phrase, and people are wondering if he's just using this phrase loosely. He says, is, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he's saying, I do. I am divine. Jesus is not just a myth. He's not just a good man, a good teacher, a, a man who had these miraculous powers and had a large following. I mean, history proves that Jesus was a real man who really lived and he did really amazing things. And historians don't debate that. Historians debate the divinity of Jesus. And so here, Jesus is showing us his authority to both forgive sins, and he's verifying that by this miraculous, powerful display of healing. He says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. So we see the fruit of faith is the forgiveness of sins. Church, where are you at this morning with your sin? Are you hiding it? Are you stuffing it? Are you keeping it in the dark? Are you beating yourself up over it? Are you, are you trying to rid it yourself? Come to Jesus. Place your faith in Jesus and the fruit of that faith is for you to once again hear with fresh new ears in mind, your sins are forgiven. Jesus has paid the price. The second fruit here that I see of faith is freedom from being controlled by career. So let's keep moving in the text here. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, now I, I love this one because I'm the type of person who in my own life and wiring, I realized pretty early on in my college career that I didn't want to be controlled by a career. That, that I would struggle to work a nine to five where it felt like all I was doing was paying the bills. Some of you are there. Some of you have done that for years. And so I don't want you to hear me saying that if you're working a career that is a bad and holy, unholy thing. But what we see here is that when we place our faith in Jesus, it frees us from having to be controlled by the normal operating mode of society. It frees us from feeling like we have to follow a certain career path or a certain trajectory. Matthew is a tax collector. That's how he pays his bills. That's how he provides for his life. Tax collectors in this society, they were looked down upon. It was a despicable job. He was, he was a thief who stole money from others, but this was his career. He had been placed as a tax collector, and Jesus comes along and he says, follow me, and what does Matthew do? He unhinges his life 
from its trajectory, from the path that he was on, to radically follow Jesus. He walks with Jesus for three years, hearing Jesus' teaching, observing Jesus' miracles, being sent out as Jesus' ambassador. And so we need to keep in mind that when we place our faith in Jesus, we are unhinged from being controlled by the things of this world. Some of you need to continue working your career, but you need to shift your perspective on that career. You're not going to your office or your work site tomorrow for the simple fact of paying your bills. You're going there as an ambassador of Christ. Jesus invites you to go back into your sphere of influence as a representative of his, as a follower of Jesus seeking to make disciples. And some of you are, are wired like me where you just couldn't handle this career idea and maybe, maybe God Maybe God is calling some of you to give up the normal pursuit of a, of a career and providing for a family in the normal way and means of American society. Maybe he's calling some of you to step out in faith as a missionary or as a church planter or as a pastor or a servant in some other type of way. Let's keep in mind here that a fruit of faith is, is for all of us to be able to say, I follow Jesus first. Not my life. My life is worth no value to me other than I would know Christ and make him known. So church, where are you at with this? How are you viewing your work? Is your work an opportunity to make disciples, to be a follower of Jesus, or is your work simply something that you do so that you can live your life? As Jesus fans into flame, our faith. We ought to hold all things with open hand. This means career. Third fruit here is that Jesus, faith in Jesus produces deep and meaningful friendship with sinners. So this is Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. They were known as sinners and the despicable people in that day and age. And look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and so Matthew, he had this career that, that provided for him. It was a despicable career, but it was a career nonetheless. It provided well for him, and he was able to have a home. And Matthew turns around, and now he's using this home to provide a space for Jesus and a bunch of other sinners to fellowship with one another. And Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Beautiful picture. Jesus is creating this diverse, messy community of people of different ethnic backgrounds, people of different social backgrounds, people of different religious backgrounds, specifically people who are far from God, the people who don't look like they belong at church, the people who don't know the right words, the people who don't know how to operate within religious circles. Jesus is reclining at table. He's, he's, he's partying with sinners and tax collectors, and I have sinners in quotes here because which one of us is not? But he's specifically spending time with people whose society would say they are the irreligious people of our society. And it goes on, he says, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the religious do-gooders, when they saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. 
So we see in here that, that a fruit of growing faith is that we, as Jesus' followers, ought to actually be in meaningful relationship with sinners, with those who are far from God, with those who are unlike us. In the Christian world and culture, far too often when, when somebody places their faith in Jesus, we want to pull them out of the world and into the church. We say you need to get away from the bad influences. And there's a certain level of we need to train people in and disciple people in the truth of Jesus. And we, we don't want to be exposed to all things that could lead us astray. But what we see here specifically is that Jesus is going out to be among those who are unlike him. And so church, as we grow in our faith, we ought to actually figure out how can we operate, how can we position our lives so that we spend time with people who are far from God. The, those who have a deep abiding faith are not those who always cloister up in their holy huddle. It's actually those who are saying, I, I'm, I have my, my spiritual family, my brothers and sisters, so that they can edify me, so that they can hold me accountable, so that they can call me out. But those who are growing in faith are, are not staying there. They're saying, now how do we disperse? How do we go out and be among sinners and tax collectors? How do we invite them into our home? How do we fellowship with those who are far from God? Because that's what Jesus did. And so as we have a growing faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus does, we imitate that and we invite sinners into our lives so that Jesus could redeem them. Now I'm going to skip over this next section on fasting because we talked about fasting a few months ago. And so I'm going to skip over that and jump down to the next section here. And the next fruit of our faith is restored health. Look at this. This is a familiar story to many of us who have been around the Bible. If you haven't been around the Bible, it's an incredible story. Listen to what Jesus does here. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, seeing her, and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw that the flute players and the crowd making commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went throughout all of that district. You see, see what's happening here is that the fruit of their faith is actually producing restored health. There's this is an interesting story in that there's a little interruption in the middle of the story. And so it starts with Jesus walking. Um, he's following the response of this man who says, my daughter has just died. This man is desperate. He comes to Jesus, and that's a principle for all of us, that, that we need to come to Jesus in desperation, believing in his ability to meet us where we're at and to give us what we need. He comes in desperation to Jesus and says, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her and she will live. He trusts Jesus for restored health, for new life, actually, in this case. So the fruit of faith is, is restored health or it's new life. That Jesus, in this story, he actually has the power to bring a dead girl back to life. That should inspire and stir faith 
in us, that Jesus has authority. And Jesus rose and followed him, so he's going to follow this man to his house to pray for his daughter. And as he's traveling and journeying there, it says, verse 20, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Can you imagine? Hemorrhaging blood for 12 years and the weakness that that would create in you. Also, in their culture, blood was unclean, and so you had to be removed from society. There were certain rules that you had to go through about how you could associate with people. And so for 12 years, this woman was considered unclean, unacceptable, and on top of that, she's physically growing weak and tired, and she's rejected by everybody, and she's desperate. She comes up behind him and touches the fringe of his garment. She's, she's thinking, I've heard about this man and his authority and his power, and she has this growing faith in who Jesus is, and she's thinking, if only I can touch him, I will be made well. For she said to herself, verse 21, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. She's desperate. Verse 22, when Jesus turned and seen her, he said, again, take heart, my daughter. Her faith has adopted her into the family of God. She now has the status as son and daughter of God. And God in person, Jesus the Christ says, take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. Your belief in the person and the power of Jesus has made you well. She's been healed. Why? Well, so that Jesus could show his divinity, yes. But what was the condition for her? What was the condition for her? I heard one. I need to hear a few more. What was the condition for her faith, for her being made well? <laughs> faith. There, I'll just say it. And isn't that even kind of uncomfortable for us to say? But here it is. There, there's some type of fruit that faith produces that a lack of faith doesn't produce. And so Jesus cares about this woman in her pain, in her suffering, in her filth. And he says, take heart, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. And in an instant, she was made well. She had restored health. Her health was restored back to her. This is Jesus. This is the God that we worship. This is the man that we follow. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, let's keep going. So now he, he continues on to the ruler's house, the man who has the dead daughter. He came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. They would often hire a musician, a flute player, to come and play as they mourned the death, the passing of somebody. And so Jesus comes, and, and there's kind of a pre-funeral happening here is what, what's going on. There's this pre-funeral happening. And he says, go away. The girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Well, the, the girl was dead. That's why the flute player was there. They, they had enough knowledge to be able to feel for a pulse in those days, in, a, in that day and age. But, but Jesus, he, he, he knows all things. He has all power, and he's saying, she, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. He's, he's cluing them into what he's about to do. They laughed at him. So there was faith from the, from the dad, right? who brings this guy here to heal his daughter, but the crowds, they, they laugh. They, they're not quite sure if Jesus knows what's going on. But when the crowd had been put outside, so there's this crowd in this house gathering around this dead girl. They're, they're starting the funeral 
the mourning for her. They're put outside. He went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. Jesus restores life and health, sometimes physically, sometimes not, but always spiritually. Keep that in mind. We come to him saying, your will be done, your will be done. Next one, I'm going to pick it up here, is restored vision. And Jesus, let's continue on, verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. Here, see, see their faith? They're following Jesus. They're proclaiming that he is the son of David. That would mean the Messiah. So they have faith that Jesus is not just an ordinary man. They have enough faith to, to inconvenience themselves to follow him. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and they follow him into a house. It's not their house. That's great faith, right? Like, they are following Jesus to any extent. They came into the house, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Yes, Master. We are submitted to you. You, you are our Master. There's this growing faith in them. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. And again, he's trying to protect his identity as a Messiah from the masses right now because it's not his time to yet be crucified. But he says, according to your faith, it is done to you. And their eyes were opened. Faith in Jesus restores vision. It restores sight, spiritual sight, and sometimes physical sight. Faith in Jesus also restores our voice. Verse 32, And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. So there's, there's some type of sin, some type of demonic possession that was causing this man to be mute. There was a sickness there that was keeping this man's voice from working properly. And his friends, in faith, brought him to Jesus. Jesus touches the man, and he's able to speak. Isn't this amazing? This is our God. This is our King. This is the man that we follow, Jesus. And lastly, the last bit of fruit is that Faith in Jesus produces marvel, wonder, and awe. Two places that I want you to see this. In verse 8 of chapter 9, this is the first story of the, the, um, of the man whose sins are forgiven, the paralytic. It says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. That word afraid, it means this reverent, respectful fear. It doesn't mean that they turn and ran. Actually, you can see that at the end of verse 8, uh, at the end of chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus casts demons out of men into pigs, and they run into this ravine and die. And this entire city was afraid of Jesus and asked him to leave. Look at verse 34 of chapter 8. It says, And behold, all the, t- all the city came out to meet Jesus after he had done this amazing miracle, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So there's a certain type of fear. You see God's power, and it pushes him away. You're afraid of his power. You're afraid of what he can do, and you actually want distance from God. That's how many people live their lives. But faith in the person of Jesus, that has a type of fear that causes you to draw near to God. 
You marvel, you wonder, you, you're in awe, like in chapter 9, verse 8. When the crowd saw this, they were afraid, and they glorified God. They were afraid. They had this same, this same reaction that there's something about this man that is different than any other men. He has authority to command the winds and the waves. He has authority to cast out demons. He has authority to touch people and heal them. And they glorified God. They didn't ask Jesus to leave. They glorified him. They worshiped him. They marveled. And then look at verse 33. At the end of this demon-possessed man being healed, chapter 9, verse 33, And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled. Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. There's this, this marveling, this wondering, this awestruckness to who Jesus is. Their faith is, is producing worship in them. That they are blown away by who this God is. And then look at, again at verse 34. This is in contrast. So verse 8, they, they are afraid and they glorify God. Verse 33, they marvel at who God is in Jesus Christ, but then look at the contrast of the religious leaders in verse 34 of chapter 9. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. No faith, no belief, only pride, only religious tradition, only stuffiness and stubbornness, and, and they're wanting the credit, and they're wanting to be affirmed for being the good religious leaders who have held the traditions together over the years. No faith in this man, this Messiah. But on the flip side, those who have a growing faith are experiencing the supernatural power of Jesus and they're marveling at him. They are, they are in awestruck wonder of who he is. And so church, where are you at this morning? Do you come to Jesus acknowledging his authority, praying if your will be done, and expecting that he will exert his will with power for his glory. And as he does, do you marvel? Do you marvel? Church, I think that's what I want us to leave us with this morning, is that I want us to corporately marvel and wonder and be in awe of who God is. In fact, just this morning, as I was walking up the aisle, a lady from our church grabbed me and said, thank you for praying for me two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, she had a cane. She had fallen and hit her head, and she was unstable and had headaches and had a cane. And two weeks ago, we preached the first part of Matthew chapter 8, and she came up afterward and asked if we would pray for her. And we prayed for her to be healed. And this morning she came up to me and said, I'm not using the cane. I feel so much better. That was a miracle. Incredible. That's our God. He doesn't always do that in every time, in every case, in every season. But certainly, Matthew 8 and 9 gives us a ton of example of Jesus healing people, right? And setting people free and cleansing people. There she is right there. There's Nancy. Yes. Jesus met Nancy where she was at and is healing her. Amen, church? Amen. That's our God. That's who we worship. And so let's not get caught up in these, these trying to figure him out too much that we even forget that Jesus is on the move. 
And let's this morning, let's marvel, let's wonder, let's be in awe of who he is and what he does. So we want to create some space for that. We're going to respond in song and worship and communion. We have the communion elements here as we do every week. And come and take communion when you're ready to be reminded that Jesus is who he said he is, that he lived the life that you can't live, the perfect life, the spotless life, the sinless life, that he overcame sin and death and the grave. But if you're in need of anything this morning, maybe just exercise some faith in the healing power of God and ask somebody to pray it for you. And let's just watch what he does. Right? And so what we want to create as we take communion at Park Community Church is some space for us to pray for one another for us to encourage one another, for us to speak God's truth to one another. That's different. That's weird. People get uncomfortable. The pews are tight. You don't know how to move around. We're a family. God is our Father. Jesus Christ is our elder brother, and he wants to meet each one of us where we're at this morning and lead us to where he desires us to be in his presence where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So let's give him some time and some space to work. All right? If you feel the Lord calling you to pray for somebody, pray for somebody. If you feel the Lord asking you to ask somebody for prayer, go and ask somebody for prayer. And let's let God have his way in us, his church. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. That you are gracious and compassionate and loving. God, I ask that you would meet us where we're at here this morning. Lord, some of us are on the mountaintop, some of us are in the valley, some of us are on the mundane path in between, and we just pray that you would meet each one of us and lead us to where you desire us to be in your presence, where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Increase our faith as we look to you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In your name we pray, amen.